This morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and these verses can be found in the Pew Bible on page 942. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we need to have our minds shaped and renewed by your word. And when your word goes forth, it accomplishes everything that you mean for it to accomplish. We're so grateful for that promise. So, we pray that your word would go forth today, attended by your Holy Spirit. Father, would you use the word to awaken sinners to their need for a Savior? Would you use your word today to continue to conform us who have believed into the very image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Give us grace to submit and to obey the word, to receive it by faith. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sarah and I arrived here as NETS interns five years ago this month. And when we entered our apartment on the NETS campus, there was a a lovely welcome packet included in that packet was the church's book of prayer requests for that year. We still produce a prayer book every year. I didn't expect to be surprised by any of the prayer requests inside, but I was beginning on the very first page because I saw multiple prayer requests from people asking for the church to pray that they would be saved. Now, I've belonged to theologically conservative churches all my life. 
And by the time I arrived here, I had a master's degree from a seminary. I'd all but wrapped up a PhD. I'd been an associate pastor and an interim senior pastor. But I didn't have any experience with that. I didn't have a category for people who willingly went to church week after week, not professing faith in Christ and asking for people to pray that the Lord would save them. Why has that been commonplace around here for all of our churches 30 years? And why must that sort of thing, that is people who are clear about the state of their souls, continue to characterize our church for the next 30 years and beyond? Why do this church's elders minister in a way that knowingly opens us up to the charge that some critics have leveled against us? Well, CMC doesn't think that you're saved until you get saved in their church. We've seen many people arrive here at our church believing themselves to have been born again and realize they're not and become truly converted. Why is it that we minister in a way and interpret and teach the Bible in a way that makes us vulnerable to being criticized for going around and making believers doubt their salvation even though that's not our aim? I'll tell you why. It's because when you're talking about the things we're talking about today, When you're talking about true conversion, you are playing for keeps. When you're talking about what the Bible says and doesn't say about being converted and about being saved and about being born again, you're talking about eternity. You're talking about the highest stakes imaginable. And so a commitment to say what the Bible says about conversion has characterized us up to now, and it must continue to characterize us going forward. There's no more important question before every single one of you today, no matter your age, no matter your church experience, than this. What is the state of your soul? Are you in Christ or not? And how do you know? What does the Bible say about how you can know that you're in Christ? What does the Bible not say is evidence that you're in Christ? And what does it matter if you get these questions wrong? What could happen to you if you don't know what the Bible says about being truly converted? You need to know the answers to those questions so that you aren't deceived when you draw your last breath or when Christ returns. And mercifully, the Lord has given us the answers to those all-important questions in his word, the Bible. Now, I hope that you have access to an outline for today's sermon. They're in the bulletin, or you can find them by going online to cmcvermont.org gather. I think having the outline in your hand will be helpful to you as we go along. You'll see from the sermon outline that I'm calling the first part of this sermon on true conversion, the terrible reality of false conversion. And I put conversion in quotation marks because a false conversion to Christianity is only a so-called conversion. A false conversion to Christ is no conversion at all. And I've described the ability to be falsely converted a terrible reality because believing you've been converted to Christ when you haven't been is indeed terrible and awful and something to be worked against with all fervor. So it'll be helpful, first of all, to begin to identify some of the characteristics 
of a false conversion. First, those who are falsely converted and therefore not converted, not born again, not saved, will have only a mental assent to the facts of the gospel. These will take great comfort about the state of their souls, and some others will wrongly also take great comfort about the state of their souls based on the fact that they believe even very sincerely the facts of the gospel. It's possible to believe that every word of the Bible is true, to believe that the God of the Bible created the world in the beginning, to believe that God's son Jesus is the only savior and that he died on the cross and was resurrected three days later and to believe that heaven and hell are real and eternal and to even be right on hot-button societal issues like believing that abortion is sinful and that gender is determined by God and is unchangeable and that marriage ought to be between one man and one woman for life. And I hope all of you believe all those things, but you must know that it's possible to affirm the truth of all of the things I've just said and to die in your sin and to spend eternity under God's righteous wrath in the lake of fire. James tells us that mental assent to the facts of the gospel alone does not indicate conversion or saving faith. James chapter 2 and verse 19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. That's James saying, yes, that's true, you do well to believe that. But then he says, even the demons believe and shudder. In Matthew's gospel, demons confess that Jesus is the son of God. In Mark's and Luke's gospels, demons call Jesus the holy one of God. In Mark's gospel, Demons call Jesus the son of the most high God. Now listen, there's a lot of Bible and gospel knowledge reflected in the demons calling Jesus the son of God and the holy one of God and the son of the most high God. In Matthew and Luke, Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. Satan apparently has got some Bible verses memorized. In Matthew 8, when the demons call Jesus the Son of God, they ask him, have you come here to torment us before the time? These demons know their prophecy. They know doctrine and theology. They know that Jesus is going to destroy them at the end. Satan and all the devils of hell are clear on the facts and on the scriptures. That's not up for debate. But you're not confused, I trust, that Satan and his demons are going to heaven. Dear ones, if belief alone, even deep-seated, zealous, sincere belief, if it's only mental assent to the facts of the gospel, if that's what you would point to as evidence for your salvation or for the salvation of your spouse, or your parents, or your grandparents, or your children. That alone gives you no more evidence for salvation than demons can muster. It isn't enough to have light only, as I've put it in the sermon outline, borrowing from Jonathan Edwards. It isn't sufficient to give mental assent to all the right things. 
Neither is it sufficient to regard yourself as having been born again or converted because you're very zealous about God and the things of God from time to time. I'm calling that heat without light. Maybe another way to put it is zeal without understanding or zeal without right belief. Let me give you a couple of examples from the scriptures. In Exodus chapter 19, the nation of Israel, they're fresh off seeing the mighty hand of God in the ten plagues in Egypt. They've seen him miraculously part the Red Sea so that they cross on dry land. The Lord has been leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They've received bread, manna that fell down miraculously from heaven for them each morning. And the nation of Israel in Exodus 19, having seen all that, is gathered now around Mount Sinai where Moses is going to go up and receive from God the law, the covenant, which Israel is to obey so as to enjoy God's blessings and to escape his curses. So Moses communicates God's commands to the people. And this is their reply. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And do you remember that in the time it took Moses to receive the law from God on Mount Sinai, the people who had made such an audacious claim, such a zealous claim, grew restless, melted their gold jewelry and made an idol, a golden calf to worship. And they said of it, Behold, the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They went from all that the Lord has spoken we will do to we worship this golden calf as the gods who delivered us from Egypt. Their zeal meant nothing. Similarly, in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And I don't have to tell you how Israel fared at keeping this promise that they offered so zealously. They failed miserably. They failed damnably. They were cursed by the Lord for their grumbling against the Lord and against Moses. They were cursed for their disobedience and unbelief. Essentially, the entire generation that was miraculously delivered from slavery in Egypt and offered these promises of keeping the Lord's words died in unbelief in the desert before they got to the promised land. In John 6, after Jesus had fed thousands miraculously with only five barley loaves and two fish, thousands fed to the full with 12 baskets left over. The people who saw this miracle and ate this miraculous food, they said in John 6, 14 about Jesus, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. In other words, this Jesus, they're saying he's the one Moses prophesied about. John says the crowd wanted to make Jesus king right then and there. And before that chapter even ends, John says that many of this crowd who had wanted so zealously and enthusiastically to crown Jesus as king of Israel and to worship him as the promised prophet, John says after this, many of his disciples turned back And no longer walked with him. They liked the gravy train. But they didn't like what he taught. And so they abandoned him. Their zeal was false and fickle. 
Jonathan Edwards, the marvelous New England pastor and preacher from the 1700s, put it this way in his religious affections, quote, there is no true religion where there is nothing else but affection. Where there is heat without light, there can be nothing divine or heavenly in that heart. Later in that same work, Edwards would say, quote, there may be religious affections which are raised to a very high degree, and yet there be nothing of true religion. I'm saying to you, friends, the dramatic experience alone means nothing. Fervor and zeal alone mean nothing. It doesn't matter what you claim to have experienced, a dream, a vision, an audible voice, a burning in your bosom, or whatever else. It doesn't matter in and of itself how zealous and excitable you get about the Lord or at church. If some experience alone, or if your zeal alone is what you're claiming is evidence of having been born again, if some experience or your zeal is in some large measure the reason you believe you've been converted, you don't have good reason to believe you've been born again. And the same is true for what I'm calling mere piety. What I mean by mere piety in the outline is a life that's filled with religious activity. Even activity that's commanded by or encouraged by the scriptures, but is done so as somehow to earn the Lord's merit or approval or love or forgiveness or is done coldly and without any love for Christ or the church you need to know that it's possible to perform a great number of Christian deeds. Reading your Bible, reading a devotional book, giving money to the church, and not have been regenerated, not have been converted. The Pharisees and the Gospels make this plain with their lives. Jesus reserves some of his harshest words for the Pharisees, who were pious without peer. In Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces woes on the scribes and Pharisees. They're the cream of the crop of Jewish religious activity in Jesus' day. And he says to them in Matthew 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. How pious are these guys? They've understood the law of Moses to require tithing, bringing a tenth of their resources to the Lord. They bring a tenth not only of their money, but they're bringing a tenth of their herbs. And Jesus excoriates these guys. He says they're hypocrites. In chapter 25 and verse 25, he says they're full of greed and self-indulgence. In 25, 27, he says they're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, filled with death and uncleanness on the inside in their hearts and souls. In Matthew 15, the Lord says to them, you hypocrites, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now let me just 
pull up for a second and make sure you're hearing me clearly. I want you to believe all that the Bible says. I want you to have all that light. And I want you to be zealous and excited about Christ in a way that's evident and down deep in your heart and soul. I want you to have heat. And I want you to be pious. I want you to read your Bibles and come to church and forsake sinful living and give generously to the church and all of that. But I don't want you who have only a mental assent to gospel facts as evident for your conversion to be deceived. And I don't want you who have only a zeal for God as evidence for your conversion, who have lots of heat but not lots of light to be deceived. And I don't want you who perform Christian activities but without love for Christ and his people as we'll define it later from the scriptures to be deceived into thinking you've been born again when you may well not have been born again. But here's the crux of the issue when it comes to having been falsely converted. Is your life marked by a patterned inability to live righteously, to obey God's commands, to love Christ and his people? No matter the facts that the scriptures assert that you wholeheartedly believe, if that's accompanied by a patterned inability to obey God, you might well be in need today of crying out to God to save you. Whatever zeal for God you display, whatever pious rituals you participate in, if those things exist by themselves, or if they're accompanied by a patterned inability to live righteously, you might well still be dead in your sins. Now I'm using this word patterned here purposefully not least because the Bible uses it, but also because nobody this side of heaven lives sinlessly and perfectly even after we've been born again. But again, we're talking about patterns or what the Bible calls practice. And I think this point is too important to miss. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1022, 1022. 1 John chapter 3. And just make note of John's use of phrases like practice or keeps on. I'm going to begin reading at verse 4, 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, that's Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Practice of sinning practices lawlessness, keeps on sinning. Do you hear that? We're talking about as a pattern of living. Whatever else might be true of a person, dear ones, if he or she makes a practice of sinning, keeps on sinning as a pattern, as a practice, whatever gospel knowledge he believes, whatever zeal she displays, whatever pious acts they perform, the Bible is saying he's lost. She's lost. As Romans 6 teaches us, those who practice sin, those who keep on sinning, are still slaves to sin. Do you not know, Paul asks in Romans 6, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The person who, as a pattern, does not live righteously does not, as a pattern, demonstrate love for Christ by demonstrating love for Christ's people, is a slave to sin, which leads to death, the Bible says. Those who haven't been born again are slaves to sin. They are literally unable, the Bible says in Romans 8, to obey God, to please God. Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, those who have not been born again, they're slaves to sin. They're unable to please God. And they demonstrate all of that because of their pattern of sin and disobedience toward God. And again, it doesn't matter what mental assent to the Bible's claims. It doesn't matter what zeal. It doesn't matter what mere externally religious deeds accompany that patterned disobedience. If they're is as a pattern of living sinful disobedience to God in your life you are still dead in your trespasses and sins now I don't want you here who have been truly converted to be fearful that you're lost which is why I'm trying to reiterate that we're talking patterns and practice not bad moments or bad hours or bad days, or even bad weeks and months. But I also don't want you here who haven't been converted to think that you are saved. Why is that? Why have we for 30 years striven to help people with our Bibles open to know what is the state of their souls and why with the Lord's grace will we keep striving in this way for our next 30 years? It's because of the consequences of false conversion. Listen to the Savior from Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you workers of lawlessness. These, these, these are among the most sobering words that our great God and King ever spoke in his earthly ministry because they reveal a person's ability to be deceived. A person who makes the right confession, Lord, Lord, that's right, Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord God Almighty. And these people, many, Jesus says, many will say to me, they've performed religious activity, more religious activity than you and I are even able to perform because these folks are prophesying and they're casting out demons and they're performing many mighty works in Jesus' name. But the right profession and even the right activities can be offered by someone who will hear at the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. And I would die trying to keep any of you from ever hearing our Lord say that to you. And may God give me and our elders love enough for you to strive with you, even at the risk of offending you or angering you, so that as much as is in our power, you are not deceived, so that you don't believe yourself to be born again when you aren't. Because if you are deceived now and you remain deceived in this life, you will be destroyed eternally. Jesus says in Matthew 25, not long before his crucifixion, that at his return he'll say to those who've not loved him and who've demonstrated that by not loving his people, he'll say, depart from me. Does that... Does that sound familiar? It's what he says to those in Matthew 7. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus says these will go away into eternal fire, but the righteous into eternal life. And so, my friends, the shepherds of this church, the elders, who are tasked by the great God of heaven with watching over your souls. We sin against God if we don't tell you the stuff that I'm telling you this morning from the scriptures. You need to know that you can be deceived about your soul. You need to know that at the last day, many will have confessed Jesus as Lord and will hear him say, I never knew you, depart from me. And you have to know that mental assent alone, or zeal alone, or moving experiences alone, or religious activity alone will not keep you from hearing these terrifying words that the Savior will pronounce to those on that last day. Well, having laid some groundwork for false conversion, I want to tell you about true conversion. And one very important thing that you need to know about true conversion is that it's a miracle. That is, God alone converts and he does it supernaturally according to his sovereign good pleasure, not according to anything that is in us or anything we say or do. In John chapter 3, a Pharisee named Nicodemus meets with Jesus at night. Nick at night. And here's Jesus' word to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, God the Holy Spirit is sovereign. The wind blows where it wishes, which is illustrative of the Holy Spirit who works wherever and with whomever he wishes. He regenerates and converts whomever he wishes. So you might say to me, well, that makes salvation the work of a sovereign God, but how does that make salvation or conversion a miracle? Conversion is a miracle because when God saves a person, he doesn't make a bad person good. He makes a dead person alive. And making dead people live again is miraculous. Being converted is passing from death to life, as the Apostle John puts it. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we're born dead in our trespasses and sins, and God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. In Ezekiel 37, the Lord gives the prophet Ezekiel a vision concerning those who'd be partakers of the new covenant. The vision is of a valley full of bones. Ezekiel says, and behold, they were very dry. Whoever these skeletons once occupied had been dead a long time. Dry bones, death, lifelessness. And then the Lord commanded Ezekiel to preach to these bleached bones. Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with sin, and breathe in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And that's what happened. Ezekiel preached to these bones, and flesh came upon the bones, and breath filled the bodies, and they lived and stood, the Bible says, an exceedingly great army. Miraculous. And if we're going to be faithful to Christ and his word in the years to come, we're going to have to believe what his word says about being born again. We have to be absolutely committed to the terrible reality of false so-called conversion so that none among us may be deceived. And we have to be absolutely committed to the miraculous nature of true conversion so that we won't act like human effort contributes to salvation, and so that we'll labor in prayer to the Lord for those who are lost, since he alone can do the saving. And we're going to have to be clear on what the Bible says about those who have indeed been truly converted. So what does the Bible marshal as evidence that someone has been miraculously and truly converted? Well, first, a person who's truly converted repents of his sins. Now, that initial repentance, which is itself the gracious work of God in the sinner's life, is going to look different from convert to convert, depending on age, depending on the depths to which the sinner had gone in his sin. Regardless, there is no true conversion without repentance. And we could say there's no repentance without first an awareness of sin. 
you who profess Christ here today, did you come to Christ because you were made aware of your sin? Did you come to Christ because by his grace you came to have some sense that your soul was in eternal peril and that the Lord was obligated to do nothing but to destroy you eternally? Did you have some sense when you came to Christ of your sinfulness and your utter need for his saving work if your sins were going to be forgiven? In Luke's gospel, Jesus told a story that illustrates the heart attitude of the one whom God justifies. Two men were, went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who was savingly made aware of his sin reflected that awareness by his humility, not even looking up to heaven, and by his prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In Mark's gospel, we're told many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." The Bible teaches that those who've been truly converted have been graciously made aware of their sin and have been granted by the Lord to repent from their sin, to turn from their sin. Now the Lord commands all people everywhere to repent, but only those to whom God grants repentance will repent. And all those who've been truly converted have repented. And as I say in the sermon outline with the phrase, then and now, they repent not only at salvation, but in an ongoing way, wherever, by the Lord's grace, forsaking our sins. Those who are truly converted also receive grace to have godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow for sin. Are those categories in your mind? Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? They're not the same thing. In fact, there's an eternity's worth of difference between the two. One accompanies repentance and one leads to eternal death. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's Paul's word to the Corinthians. 
Godly sorrow says with King David in Psalm 51, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Godly sorrow grieves sin because sin grieves the Lord who loves the one who's been truly converted and gave himself up for that person. Godly sorrow isn't entirely concerned with consequences, but with God. Worldly sorrow, which is a kind of sorrow to be sure, is focused on consequences. Worldly sorrow isn't associated with repentance, and therefore worldly sorrow produces death. Because those who die unrepentant die in their sin. Those, though, with godly sorrow who've been graced to know something of the depth of their sinful state, to know something of their need for Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection for their salvation, those with godly sorrow repent from sin and that repentance leads to a salvation without regret. Those who've been truly converted and therefore have the hope of eternal life with Christ, they also submit They submit to and they obey God's word, the Bible, as we heard last week. Not perfectly, but again, as a pattern of living, as a practice, they submit to and they obey God's word. That is, those who've been truly converted, if they have a desire to do one thing and God's word says to them to do another thing, the Holy Spirit of God who comes to live and indwell the believer at salvation empowers the Christian to submit to and obey God's word in every area of life and in all areas of life, in finances, in entertainment, in work, in dating relationships, in friendships, in parenting, in marriage, in jobs, in school, you name it. The one who's been truly converted says as a pattern of living, says with the psalmist in Psalm 119, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Whereas those who are unconverted, whatever their profession of faith might be, Do not submit to God's word, or at least not to the parts they don't like. St. Augustine famously said, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. But those who've been wondrously and mercifully and graciously and miraculously visited by God with salvation humbly submit to his word as recorded in the scriptures and obey it and can obey it because they're no longer slaves to sin but slaves to righteousness. Those who've been truly converted likewise have faith in the Jesus as revealed in the scriptures and not a Jesus of their own making. I've heard people talk about that Jesus. A Jesus who would never want me to believe that. A Jesus who'd never want me to do that, never want me to give that up. A Jesus who would want me to be happy above all else. No, faith in that Jesus, being converted to that Jesus, is no conversion at all. Now it's true 
The Jesus of the Bible is gentle and lowly in heart. He dwells with tax collectors and sinners. He washes sinners' filthy feet. He isn't ashamed to save wicked, unlovely, sinful outcasts and call them his brothers. The Jesus of the Bible is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his friends, his brothers, on the cross, willingly accursed so that his people could be forgiven of our sins and have his righteousness accounted to us and be given peace with God and have communion with God and the hope of eternal life in his very presence. The Jesus of the Bible was willing to empty himself by taking the form of a slave and being born in the likeness of men, willingly humbling himself to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for his people and our sins, and to be resurrected in glory and power and majesty as the first fruits of all who would die in him. The Jesus of the Bible is the faithful and true bridegroom who's working even now to cause his bride, the church, to be presented to himself in the last day in splendor without spot or wrinkle. But don't get it twisted. Because this same Jesus is coming to judge. God has fixed a day, Paul told those in Athens in Acts 17, on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The Jesus of the Bible is going to be the rider on a white horse in Revelation 19. And his wrath toward his enemies, that is those who have not believed on him, will be so severe on that day that those who are alive will wish for rocks to fall on them and crush them lest they have to face the wrath of Christ as he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The Jesus of the Bible says he's the only way to God. He says that those who don't hate their own fathers and mothers and wives and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even their own lives, cannot be his disciples. And I'm saying to you, those who have been truly converted have faith in the Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus of their own making, not a Jesus that's the result of cherry-picking the things someone likes about Jesus from the Scriptures and leaving behind the things you don't. There's no salvation in that Jesus because that Jesus doesn't exist. The Jesus who saves is the Jesus who has revealed himself in the word of Christ. And those who have been truly converted have been given the grace to repent and place their faith in him. If I were to try and boil down what constitutes true conversion as over against false conversion in a word, that word would be transformation. Transformation. That's what indicates true conversion. And it's what can be the evidence of false conversion. The lack of transformation anyway. Paul says to the Corinthians, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Yes, When God causes someone to be born again, the old passes away. Inability to please God. Being dead in trespasses and sins. Being blinded by Satan to your sin. Being blinded by Satan to your need for repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. But new things have come. When God saves a man, he's a new creature. 
No longer enslaved to sin. Now, as we read in Romans 6, a slave to righteousness. No longer dead in sin, but dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. No longer under sin's dominion. No longer uh, under law, but under grace. This is my testimony. For as long as I can remember... I've mentally assented to every fact the Bible asserts. I have always, my whole life, for as long as I can remember, I have always believed and believed sincerely all the claims of the gospel. I had all the right main doctrines. And I had experiences galore, my goodness. I would go to Christian conference after Christian conference as a teenager and sermons would move me or music would move me and as was often the case in the tradition I grew up in, I'd go to the altar at the front and I'd kneel and I'd pray and I'd sob about my sin. I had Boku experiences but only with worldly sorrow over the sins that had me by the throat. Not with godly sorrow, because as soon as the conference was over, or as soon as the church service was over, I was worldly, I was lustful, I was foul-mouthed, I wanted to be esteemed by my pagan friends. But when God truly converted me 22 years ago this December, he broke the power of canceled sin and set this prisoner free. That's what it means to be born again. It means to be changed and transformed and made new and made alive and made able to love King Jesus and his people and made able to submit to and treasure his word and all the rest we've been talking about. Brothers and sisters, those who've been truly converted are transformed because this gospel is powerful. The message of Christ's death and resurrection is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. By it, the Lord delivers from sin's slavery. And he delivers from being accursed and under his wrath. And through the gospel, the Lord causes dead people to be alive eternally and to be made in his son's image. Angry people now marked by love. Depressed people now marked by joy. Anxious people now marked by faith and hope. Lustful people now marked by love for others. People with sinful, self-destructive patterns become marked by self-control. When the Lord saves a person, he comes in to dwell in a person by his Holy Spirit and there's transformation and there's power for righteous living and there's freedom and there's deliverance and there's life. There's salvation from death and hell and the grave. There's joy and hope for life beyond the grave with Christ. This gospel is something else. And the truly converted man or woman or boy or girl is delivered from sin's slavery and begins to live righteously as a pattern and practice. John tells us in 1 John 2, since you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And this righteousness that the truly converted person practices, is it some nebulous good deed of the day? The Bible tells us what this righteousness is. It's the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. That's the fruit that's found in the conversion orchard, growing on the branches of those who've been placed in the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his indwelling Holy Spirit who produces this fruit. And it's not for nothing that this list in Galatians 5 starts with love, because that's what God's law boils down to, isn't it? That's what Jesus said. Love God, love for his people. Or put another way, love for God that's evidenced in a laying down your life love for his people the way Jesus loved his people. That's what John says again in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, again, the first of the fruit of the Spirit, does not know God because God is love. We love each other because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And we'll hear more about that next week, Lord willing. Now let me just make sure some applicational thoughts are clear as I wrap up. First, to apply what I've been talking about today, I call on you who profess faith in Christ to heed Paul's command in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. And so how is it, brothers and sisters, that you examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith? What is it that you're looking for? You've got to know if you're going to examine yourself for it. As we've been saying, you're looking for transformation, not perfection. Not perfection. But transformation. A pattern of victory over sin. You're looking for love for God in Christ. Do you love him? Do you put his commands over your own desires? Are you joyful and grateful when you think of his work for you on the cross and his intercessory work for you now? Do you ever think of him and his work for you? Do you seek to hear from him in his word, making sure you attend to the preaching of the word? Do you love his people? Do you give and serve and otherwise lay down your life for the saints, primarily in the context of your church home? Are you glad to be with the saints? Do you prioritize being with them here or in your community group or in your home over dinner or coffee? And when I exhort you to examine yourself, don't think that that's a command that's best obeyed at home by yourself in your mirror. Paul says, examine yourselves. We're talking about a team sport. If you're going to obey this command, you've got to let people into your life. You've got to let people offer feedback. You've got to ask questions. Because if you're deceived, one of the things that makes you deceived is that you're blind, but you don't know you're blind. So examining yourself takes place in the covenant community, not off by yourself primarily. And you need to be periodically examining. And you don't need to be frustrated by folks who ask you examining questions. You can't afford to be deceived. You can't afford to hear the Lord Jesus say, I never knew you. 
So what do you do if some of you are examining unearth some things that are troubling to you? Give me a call. I'd love to talk with you. Or another of our pastors or elders. Let us walk with you. Maybe your anxiety is misguided. Maybe you're needlessly worried about your soul. But maybe you aren't. Regardless, the next step is not to despair or throw up your hands. A faithful church is the best place in the world to be for someone who discovers they've never been born again. Because by God's grace, the only message you're going to hear here every week is the message that God uses to save. And so we'll open the scriptures with you and we'll plead with the Lord with you for your soul. He's merciful to save people who thought they were saved but weren't. He was with me and he was with many of you. And lastly, my brothers and sisters, as you received Christ, so walk in him. Keep walking the walk of those who've been truly converted by the Lord's mercy through his son. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So how did you receive him? You received him in awareness of sin and in repentance and faith and in newfound love for God and Christ's people. So keep walking with the Lord in those ways and do that all the way until you take your last breath and thereby find that the Lord has indeed been pleased to cause you to be born again, to cause you to have been truly converted. Resolve anew this morning to wage war on sin. This is a fight. It's wartime. There's still an enemy of your soul who's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resolve anew to do the things that grow your love for the Lord and to show your love for his people. Resolve by God's grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. My beloved brothers and sisters, the Lord has been merciful to us, hasn't he? To show us in the scriptures by the help of his spirit what it looks like to have been truly converted and what doesn't mean someone has been saved. You need to receive that as a grace gift from the Lord to you. And if we're going to be helpful to each other, to each other's eternal souls over the next 30 years and beyond, we must remain committed to believe and to teach and to minister what God says about what it looks like when he truly saves a person's soul. Let's pray. Father, it's a wonder beyond our ability to tell that you ever save anyone. That you've given us your word whereby we can know how to be saved. Whereby we can know what it looks like when you have miraculously visited someone with salvation. Your word helps us not to be deceived. If there are any among us here today, Father, who believe themselves to be in Christ but are not, would you give them the grace to know what is the state of their soul? Help them not to despair, but to come to Jesus, who still receives sinners. Father, if there are any of my brothers and sisters who are apt to be troubled, I pray that you would comfort and encourage them today. Use brothers and sisters to help in that way. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel that is the power of God unto salvation that makes of people dead in their sins and trespasses, people who are eternally alive, transformed, new creation through your son's death and resurrection. 
We thank you through the Lord Jesus. Amen.